So as we just said, I'm a student at the University of York. I'm in my final year doing the last piece of work that I will ever do there. This is the, this is the biggest piece of work I've ever done. It is enveloping my life. It's taken over at points. It almost defined who I am. It takes up so much of my time. But I have a big problem. I can't explain it. Trying to, to discuss the intricacies of Suzuki Miura cross-coupling with people doesn't exactly, you know, interest them. <laughs> uh, it, you know, but it, it's been a bit of a problem for me. I was, you know, I sat down with my cousins and my family before the year started, and um, to one of them, I they asked both two at separate points. They asked me how it was going, and the, well, the first one I gave a really fluffy explanation. Um, by the end of it, neither of us had any idea what I was doing. It didn't really um, kind of help either of us. We both just nodded along and went, yeah, that's, that's really cool. Nice, yeah. Um, and to the second person, we went to the other extreme. I thought, well, I'll try and explain it more. I'll, you know, I'll, I'll make it a bit more interesting. And used so much chemical jargon and terminology that while I was having a lot of fun, they, they had no idea. <laughs> I just kind of watched their eyes glaze over. Um, but I wonder, if for any students, you might be able to write that bit more. But anyway, when you get a new job, or you have a new experience, how do you explain it to someone? And how do you tell someone outside of management what it's like to run a school or to look after a business? How do you tell someone in an office what it's like to serve coffee to people every day, to make them feel welcome even when you're feeling rubbish? And how do you explain what it's like to be a parent to someone when the other person doesn't have kids, the responsibility that's on your shoulders, the time that takes? And when we fail to do this, sometimes we get frustrated with ourselves. We lose touch with what we're aiming to do, we think, well, we think we want to share this joy that we have with this thing, with other people, but we can't manage it. How does what I'm doing help other people? How does it serve others if I can't explain it, if I can't share it with them? How often does this happen with our faith, with what we believe about God? Today we're looking at belief, and we see throughout Jonah that real belief changes action. When Jonah or the pagans really believe in the commands and trust the promises of God, the actions change. When they come to know who God is, it affects their whole lives. In the first week with Alan, we saw how God invites us to be part of his work. But unless we believe in him, we actually mean obey and trust in his promises, we can't do anything. In the second week, we heard with Christian that it's more than just knowing that God loves us. We actually have to turn around, step out, leave parts of our lives behind. The word, the word we often use for that is repent to turn around, to serve, and from there to serve others. Real belief changes actions. So if you get lost during this talk, when I mention belief, hopefully I'll say something important afterwards. <laughs> but Christian belief is tangible. It's more than just a warm, fuzzy feeling we get when, we, you know, when we're worshiping, or we lift, or a tingly feeling on our hands and we leave, leave our hands up in, the, up in the air for too long. It's greater than helping the homeless one evening a week or campaigning for justice. Not only is knowing that God loves us meaningless without serving him, the work we're doing to help others is meaningless without knowing that, knowing that and giving it to them. That is where our ultimate hope lies. Jonah knew who God was. He knew that God was of the sea and the dry land, but he didn't help the sailors in the storm. He hid at the bottom of the boat. When he comes up, kind of encouraged by the, by the captain of the ship, he, he tells them who God is. But very kind of, in a very, very, oh, he's just this person. I follow. He's the God of the Hebrews. I'm a Hebrew. Yo. But his real belief changes the actions of the sailors. When they hear that who God is, when they hear that this is the God of the sea, and they're in this storm that they've already worked out, they've already decided is divine, 
like, they're so confused, like, what, they start to panic. You know, what is Jonah doing? And they believe in God's promises. They follow his commandments. They repent as they throw Jonah overboard, knowing that what they're doing is, is wrong. And then you see God's, we see God's mercy come in, and they form a covenant relationship with God. They, they follow him. They change their life. They leave their old lives behind. Okay, let's come back to Jonah 3. God sends Jonah back out, but this time in Jonah 3, it's different. So the book of Jonah is almost like one big joke the whole way through. It's a piece of satire. I used to go to a camp in May where every mealtime, one of the leaders would stand up and tell them a really, really long story. At the end, there'd be the most awful punchline. You'd be stretching it out, stretching it out, kind of getting all, all, all that tense, tense build-up waiting, and it's such a letdown. But this point, this, the, the joke here isn't a letdown. It, it's almost, but it's still the opposite of what we expect to happen. See, at the start of the book, God sends Nineveh to proclaim against Nineveh. We're expecting God's judgment. Israel is oppressed by Nineveh, so God will judge them, right? They worship other gods. They do violence, evil. But there in chapter 3, God tells Jonah to proclaim to the city, not against them. Maybe something different will happen. Maybe real belief will change action. So this time, Jonah gets up. Despite what he has said and done, what he still thinks, God still uses him. God, but Jonah has a marathon challenge. He has to speak to a whole area three days walk across. We're talking about uh, an area kind of the size of greater London with a population a bit smaller than York. This is, you've, got to, you've got to find the people first, right? <laughs> and this is, this is no small task. What does he do? He gets up, walks a day's journey in, and then starts to speak. Imagine walking 15 miles in one day. Your body is aching, you're tired. The people, and then you start preaching. The people are hostile. These are not kind people. These are people that are going to shout back. They're going to throw stuff at you. They're people that might even attack you. But his belief now changes action. Something changed when he repented in the fish. He realized who, something more of who God was, and that changed his actions. Rather than running away from, trying to run away from God, as he did at the beginning, he steps out and follows through. So, and he follows through, and the message that he preaches to them, 40 more days, and Nineveh shall be overturned. He believes God's promises and obeys his commands. But we'll pause here for a second. Here's the second warning. There's a bit of a joke coming. God could have been a lot more clear here. He could have used a word to destroy or to break or to shatter, but he didn't. The word here used for overturn can also mean turned over, turned around, transformed. So maybe as well as God wanting to overturn the Ninevites, maybe he was also overturning their actions, not just the city. Maybe Nineveh itself could be transformed, turned over. The people could be saved, right? Sorry. So that's what we see. Next in the passage, they repent. They get rid of their normal clothes. They put on sackcloth. Imagine that wool jumper your grand made for you, but even more itchy. This is the most uncomfortable and unpleasant kind of thing they can try and represent. This is a symbol of self-denial. They are begging for God to save them. The king declares to the whole city that animal, even the animals must not eat or drink. They get rid of things that make their life easy and comfy. They stop their violence, their evil, just so that maybe, just maybe, God will save them. Here they really believe, they really trust in the promise that God has put to them that the judgment is coming. And that real belief changes their actions. They lay aside 
the things that God doesn't want to do and take up the things that he does. And I'm sure you can guess what the punchline is. The pagans in Nineveh, just like the sailors, saw an event happening and repented. They turned around, and because of that, God saves them. Now, we see God being active in two ways in both these stories. We see an event happening. God uses a physical thing to shake us up, to make us aware of what's happening. In chapter 1, it's a storm. Physical, I can see it. It's happening. In In the second time, it's a promise of a future event. God uses something to shake us up, to make us realize something in our life isn't quite right. When we're comfy and happy, God brings us out of that. And sometimes that is painful. Um, I can't imagine the storm was very pleasant. Sometimes God uses that. God sends something into our lives that isn't pleasant, that isn't nice for us. But it wakes us up out of that still sleepiness we get when we're at home. And when Jonah speaks in both stories, he reveals something of who God is. To the sailors, he makes it easy, and he says, it's Yahweh. Hey, guys, it's God of the sea and the sky. But to the Ninevites, he makes it a bit harder. He, says that he, he, he just says that judgment is coming. But the Ninevites, it clicks. This must be a God thing. Only a God can judge a whole city like that. So God uses us. He uses his people to reveal who he is on earth. Sometimes it's a scary message of judgment, like to Nineveh. Other times it's simply saying who God is, like to the sailors. But God uses his people to create belief that changes actions, to bring people to trust his promises and to follow his commandments. But in chapter 3 as well, God doesn't just use Jonah. This is too big a task for one purpose. God's message is infectious. What Jonah said planted seeds in people's hearts and in their minds. The tangible message that Jonah gives out to the city spreads throughout the city. That he, while God only sent one man, he used everyone. God can use you and will use you despite what you believe. He uses the Ninevites to bring about their own salvation. He uses the broken and the evil as well as the whole and the good. He uses every method possible to bring people to him. God will use you despite your belief, even if your belief doesn't change your actions, like it did for Jonah at the beginning. God will use those actions that you have, even in running away from him, to bring this to him, the sailors wouldn't have been saved unless Jonah ran away. God can use all of what we do, even the things that we seem to be, when we seem to be rebelling against him. And again, Jonah's desire to judge the Ninevites was what God used to bring about their repentance and to save them. We see in chapter 4 next week that Jonah wasn't happy about that. The real belief changes action. God calls us on the best path, the path that is best for all of us. Despite God using Jonah for saying, you can get up and go through this, he's still changing Jonah. This use of Jonah isn't saying to Jonah, you're perfect. In chapters 2 and 4, we see how God is changing Jonah, bringing him to real belief to change his actions. This doesn't stop when we become believers, when we come to know God. This keeps on going. God doesn't stop challenges. He keeps on knocking off the rough edges. Again, sometimes this can hurt. But it is for our good. It is so that we can truly know him and be near him. The wind, the whale, in chapter 4, the scorching sun and the wind are all unpleasant things. But they are there to show Jonah the goodness of God. They are there to bring Jonah to real belief so that he can do God's work. So part of this work that we do is bringing people to know God. Part of that that real belief is sharing it. 
knowing who he is, making our belief tangible to other people, showing them how it affects our lives and why we follow it. One of the things is one of the things that God commands us to do. Now, imagine you're at the supermarket. You did your shopping, you get to the checkout, and you're talking to the person, kind of beeping the shopping through, kind of chatting about how your week's been. And then you mentioned you went to church on Sunday, and they ask you the golden question. Oh, I've been wondering what Christians believe. So what does it mean to follow Jesus? And you've got a minute before they finish, and you have to move on. So let's turn to our neighbors now. You've got that one minute. What are you going to do? What are you going to say? I often really find, I find it really hard to do that when you put on the spot, when you've got that moment, and you've been waiting for that moment. This is, this is what you want. You want to share your faith. And you go, oh, wait, now, uh, yeah, Jesus, he's a great guy, you know, and we kind of follow him and go to church on Sundays. It's fun. You should come. Yay. And you kind of walk away feeling rubbish, like, what was the point of that? I didn't actually manage to tell them what I wanted to tell them. I didn't really manage to tell them what I believed. Um, some of you might have used, um, kind of might have thought about beforehand, so you knew what you were going to say. You prepared a message, um, kind of like Jonah did. And something that I, work, I learned a while back, and I found quite useful when I remember to use it, um, it's something called the four-point system. It was kind of on hoodies for a long time. Um, you know, those those the, yeah, four different symbols. And I found it's a really, I found it's a really great way of making sure that in that moment, um, you don't bustle it, you don't give a fluffy explanation about how God changed your life and how much better you feel now, and all that you don't use so much Christian jargon um, that you've, they've heard the person's no idea what you're saying. What is this thing called salvation? Um, this system makes it so you make sure you can cover the basics of um, Christianity from where we are. Um, they kind of walk through like this: God loves you. Uh, we have all done bad things and messed up in life. Jesus died so that we, have a we can have a relationship with God. And what are you going to do about it? And these are almost like the last few chapters that we've been going through this week. In chapter 1, we see, Jonah, we see God, Jonah, God, God's invitation to Jonah to step out, to be part of his work. And then we see in chapter 2, we see how Jonah is messed up. We see Jonah's need to repent. He needs to turn and ask God to forgive him. And in chapter 3, we see this belief occur as we see God forgive the Ninevites. It's only possible for, because of what Jesus would later do, thousands of years later on the cross. Another good thing about the system is that you can kind of, see, kind of guess, if you're going to see the person again, guess where they are, guess where they are in the, in going through there. You know, maybe they need to know that God loves them. Maybe they've never heard about who Jesus is before. And that's the first thing we want to tell them. We want to invite them into that relationship with God. Tell them that he loves them. Tell them that God, tell them that God wants to know them. He, that he made them. That he is, they are precious and special to him. But maybe they know that already. Maybe actually they need to be reminded that we've all messed up in our lives. We've all done bad things. Everyone knows this kind of in, in them. They all know that um, deep down they don't do the right things. And maybe sometimes we need to remind people of that, that God's love isn't totally unconditional. We need to turn around to follow what he has called us to do. Or perhaps they know all of this, and actually they just need a good kick. They need to be asked the question, what are you going to do about it? You know this. You know we've, told you, or you, we've been told that God loves you. You know that he wants you. You know that you've messed up. You know that God and Jesus died for your sins on the cross so that you can step into that relationship with him. He's removed all that guilt. So what are you going to do about it? Are you going to get up? Are you going to go? Are you going to follow him? 
So this can all be really hard to do. It is scary, we hide away, we avoid doing it because we are scared of showing people something so important to us. But we know this love God has for us, right? We know how freeing it is. We know how much joy it gives us. How, you know, it's, it's what gets us up in the morning. It's what allows us to sleep at night. And it, was the best, it is the best thing in the world to us. So why don't we want to share it with people? If we really know that love in our hearts, we want to share it. We want them to know it because we get so much joy when, the, when we see the penny drop, when the light comes on in their eyes, when they know who Jesus is. Um, Charles Spurgeon once says that it is the happiest thing in the world to bring someone to know God. And don't we want to know what that feels like? Don't we want, we want to find that joy, the happiest thing in the world, to show people who Jesus is, to show them that love that God has for them? So to close, let's, uh, let's pray. Uh, this is a prayer that the first part, um, I don't think, or well, the second part, I don't think has ever gone answered in my life. Um, and the final part is often the bit I mess up, um, but the important thing is getting out there and going. Father, may I have real belief. May I trust in your promises and from here follow your commands. This week, give me the opportunity to tell someone who you are, to share your love with them. Make the opportunity obvious so that I don't miss it. And give me the courage to step out, to tell them how they can follow you. Let me know the joy of showing someone who you are. Amen.